There were a priest and a rabbi, and they both walked into a bar. You'd think the second one would have noticed. <laughs> Takes a second. <laughs> All right. Blessed art thou, Lord, our God, King of the universe. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, this afternoon, and our desire as always is to glorify you. Lord, may you help us all, you, me, them, to all stay focused upon you and your word. May you lay your path clearly out before us. And Lord, I myself ask for assistance in helping to make your path clearer for those who are here to hear it today, that they may take what you need to hear from this message as they go out into the world and share it with, it, with people whom, whom they encounter. Lord, may everyone here be a glorification to your name and not a, not demean it. Lord, we ask for your protection over the people here, those suffering from illness, those suffering from injury, those suffering from adverse circumstances. And we ask for relief from those things. We ask for your protection over your people here and in the land of Israel and all over the world. And we ask for your protection even upon our enemies, that they be able to live long enough to see the truth of your your word and come to have a relationship with their creator. In the name of Messiah, I pray these things. B'shem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Okay. Now, besides the people who are expected to always know these things, who can tell me what this week's parsha was named? Yeah, John, you're supposed to know. And how many people read it? I know you all did, right? Okay. You probably read it in English. It's called Chukat, uh, which is usually translated as a judgment, an ordinance, or a custom, depending on which translation of the Bible you're using. So it seems like it should refer to something that's a well-reasoned, carefully thought-out decision made by God as to how his people should live. There are several times in this portion that's just not the case. Uh, in case you're wondering, today, the title of today's message is, Well, That Doesn't Make Sense. Have <laughs> you ever thought that when you're reading Scripture? Yeah. It's a good thing I'm not God because I would just be, I'd be looking at these things and say, Well, that, that's just stupid. I wouldn't do that. But I'm not God, and that's kind of the point. Um, in rabbinic interpretation, there are actually three different kinds of commandments. Uh, Mishpatim, first off, are not the ones today. Mishpatim are laws that just plain make sense. Things like, thou shalt not kill. Well, it makes sense that thou shalt not commit murder because, you know, then there'll be nobody left. Yeah, there'd be one person left at the end and he'd be, he'd be lonely and then he would break his glasses and couldn't read his books. Uh, things like, thou shalt not steal. Because if everybody steals, then they're gonna steal from you too. And you can steal from them, but then you don't have any stuff. And, I mean, anybody here like their stuff? I mean, it's, it's nothing to be embarrassed about. There's a big difference between being greedy and appreciating the stuff you have, okay? C.S. Lewis called these sorts of common laws that we all would come up with anyway as proofs of, object, of moral objectivity. In fact, he uses this as a proof of God's existence, that we all have these 
basic morals in common. In fact, he shares, he does it, sums it up a lot better than I can. I'm just going to read from mere Christianity. I only ask the reader to think what a totally different morality would mean. Think of a country where people were admired for running away in battle, or where a man felt proud of double-crossing all the people who had been kindest to him. You might as well imagine a country in where two and two made five. Now, men have differed as regards what people you ought to be unselfish to, whether it was only your own family or your fellow countrymen or everyone. But they have always agreed that you ought not to put yourself first. Selfishness has never been admired. Now, men have differed as to whether you should have one wife or four, but they have always agreed that you must not simply have any woman you wish. C.S. Lewis, a well-revered theologian with good reason. He had a gift for taking complex theological ideas and distilling them down so that your average everyday person could go, oh, that makes sense. He's much better at that than I am. The second kind of commandment are the edot. And an edah is, the little translation is a testimony. These are commandments like, remember the Sabbath. Uh, uh, Honor your father and mother, things like that are things to remember things. There aren't that many of those actual kinds, but they're the smallest category of commandments. And then we have the commandments like in today's portion, chukat. Chukim, a chuk is a commandment that it either makes some sense, but we probably wouldn't do it if it wasn't commanded, or it just makes no sense at all. But we do it anyway because God said so. It's also the first type of mitzvah to be abandoned by antinomians, people who don't support keeping the Torah or keeping God's law. A good example of this type of law is, is the kosher laws. We're all familiar with the kosher laws, yes? Now, we all know that keeping a kosher diet is basically better for you than not keeping a kosher diet, right? So it, it's kind of, it makes sense. How many of you would keep a kosher diet if God didn't command it? Did anybody else really enjoy, I, mean, I don't know, there are a few of us who kept kosher their whole lives. For all of us who didn't, how many of you really enjoyed a good chewy piece of bacon? Yeah, I'm, I'm in that camp. I, 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 I occasionally kind of miss bacon, but I feel good about making that decision to serve God instead. I really, really do. <laughs> Another glaring example of a chuk, something that doesn't make any sense, and that we read in this, that Ari read this morning in the Torah portion, is the red heifer. Now in Talmud, the red heifer is so important that an entire tractate of Talmud, Talmud Parah, tractate Parah, is devoted to its laws. One sixty-third of the core text of common Jewish law is devoted to just over 100 verses in Scripture, which is roughly one twenty-three hundredth of Scripture, give or take. Math is not my strong suit. Parah Adamah literally means a red cow. 
Rabbinic interpretation makes it clear that a heifer is intended, though, uh, because only, let's say, an unmounted cow can qualify. Uh, this actually makes the appearance of the red heifer even more miraculous, because it can't. Once you get a red heifer, it can't pass on its genome to be bred. There are groups that are in Israel and actually one guy in Texas trying to raise breeding cattle that are more likely to produce a red heifer. Um, they have yet to produce one that hasn't been disqualified as it reached the age of slaughter anyway. Now as you read in this week's passage, because I, I know you all read it, there's a lot of pretty nonsensical stuff in this portion. And also there's a lot of symbolism explaining the law of the red heifer. You'll find most of the symbolism that explains the law of the red heifer is anachronistic, which means that at the time wouldn't make any sense. Looking back now for 3,500 years later, we can find where it makes sense. But at the time, there's going, okay, God says to do this, doesn't I don't know why, but he said to do it, so we'll do it. Numbers 19, 1 through 3. And you've heard this already this morning, so. But I'm reading from the King James because, you know, frankly, it's the one I like and it's better. (laughs) It's not really better, but it's the one I like. And the Lord spake unto Moses and unto Aaron, saying, This is the ordinance of the law which the Lord hath commanded, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, that they bring thee a red heifer without spot, wherein is no blemish, and upon which never came yoke. And you shall give her unto Eleazar the priest, that he may bring her forth without the camp, and one shall slay her before his face. Of the hundreds of sacrifices made by the priests in the temple, I, I, I used to know the exact number. It adds up. And that's just the, the ones that are commanded. It doesn't include the things that people brought as forgiveness, for, asking forgiveness for things or as goodwill, free will offerings. Jesus said there were thousands of sacrifices a year in the temple. Um, out of all the sacrifices, only three were taken outside the camp to die. The scapegoat, now what you're going to say, the scapegoat didn't get killed. It was, it, was, it was allowed to escape, right? Well, they made sure that it escaped over a cliff so it didn't come wandering back. and So it, 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 it died outside the camp. Whether that's a Outside the camp sacrifice or just a logistical loophole, I, I'm not going to qualify to make that decision. Um, the birds sacrificed at the cleansing of a leper. You remember when, when the leper was cleansed, they, they, kill, they killed a bird, took a live bird, dipped it in the blood of the dead bird, and let it fly away with some sprinkling. And of course, the red heifer was taken outside the camp. In the case of the Parah Adumah, which I read that word, it means literally red cow, there's still a connection to the temple or tabernacle because the blood is sprinkled towards it, towards the temple. Um, of the three that are sacrificed outside, it's the only one that does that. Uh, Numbers 19, 5 through 7, And one shall burn the heifer in his sight. Her skin and her flesh and her blood with her dung shall he burn. 
Nothing was separated out. It was all burnt. You don't get any hamburger from this cow. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet and cast it into the midst of the burning of the heifer. Then the priest shall wash his clothes and he shall bathe his flesh in water. And afterward he shall come into the camp and the priest shall be unclean until the even. So this is a burnt offering, an olah. Like most olot, it burns completely. But in this case, extra cleansing elements are added to the fire. The cedar and the hyssop. You'll note too, the priest who kills the heifer and adds the cedar, hyssop, and scarlet is not the same person who burns it. And that person isn't even required by Scripture to be a priest or a Levite. That's really unusual for a sacrifice. It probably always was, but it's not required by Scripture. In addition, this sacrifice makes the priest performing it unclean until evening. You may think that makes sense. You, you touch a dead body, you run, you're unclean, right? Uh, let me ask you, how many lambs were sacrificed during Pesach? Thousands, you know, tens, hundreds of thousands a day sometimes. They, they say that the, uh, the, uh, the river, the river of Israel ran red with the blood of all the lambs sacrificed at Passover. Now, did the priest have to leave the temple grounds and cleanse himself and go into mikvah after each sacrifice so he could remove the uncleanness of a dead animal before coming back into the temple? No, that would be ridiculous. Killing a sacrifice doesn't make the priest unclean, except for the red heifer. Uh, next verse, we see that the man who did the burning is also made unclean with the same inability to be made clean until the evening. That's another thing. With every other sacrifice, or not with every other sacrifice, every time you, you know, if you touch a dead body, or if you kill an animal, for any time you come in contact with death, you need to be, you become unclean by coming in contact with death. And you go, and you go in the mikvah, and when you come out of the mikvah, you're clean again, right? Not in the case of the red heifer. No matter what you do, you're unclean at least until evening. And if you don't go to the cleansing, you're clean, unclean until the next evening. Even the guy who gathers up the ashes and stores them in a clean place, he's still outside the camp, by the way. It's kind of weird. He's unclean. Apparently, even the ashes are unclean since they must be stored away from the holy precincts. And finally, the purpose of these stored ashes is completely unprecedented. It makes the water of separation, as King James said. Uh, the, the version we read with the, uh, what is that, the New King James? It says water of purification. Um, that's not actually what the Hebrew word there means, though. It means separation which is a very similar concept but not exactly the same. Now, the water of separation described in the next chapter as the means of cleansing from the uncleanness from the touching of a dead body. The taint of death. The Hebrew is even more startling. For it is a water of separation from sin. 
Chatat doesn't mean uncleanness. Chatat means sin. The water of separation, which by the way was made with a tiny little proportion of cow ashes, not only removed the most pervasive of uncleanness, but it actually made your sin not count. We'll touch on that later. Uh, the next part in here that just doesn't make any sense is the whole striking the rock instead of talking to it thing. I'm not even going to address the whole issue of Moses and Aaron telling the Israelites that they would bring forth water or that the word for rock isn't eben, which means a stone or a block. Because most of us think of the, getting water from the rock as like a boulder, right? Everybody remember your, your children's Bibles with a picture of the little boulder and they're getting water out of it? For anywhere from, uh, my own feeling is around two or three hundred thousand people. Uh, I've seen guesstimates as, as large as several million. Um, now it, it's, uh, it's Sela, meaning a crag or even like a rocky fortress, a huge, rough rock, uh, a small mountain or a cliff. It's, it's much like we, you all remember the song Mao's Tour? Our rocky fortress is our God. Now I'm just going to ask you all, if you had just left Egypt a few months ago, and you'd seen those plagues and the parting of the Yom Suf, even more recently you'd seen water brought out of a rock, but that one was called a tour. Almost exactly in the same place where this is happening. Would your first assumption be that you're going to die of thirst and you should rebel against Moses, you know, the dude who talks to God and gets God to give you water and food and shade and light and stuff? That seems like a dumb idea, but that's what the Israelites do. It just doesn't make any sense. The next thing in here that... No, there's more than just these three things, but the next big thing I'm going to talk about in this portion that doesn't make any sense at all the third big what the what of our, of our parasha is the nechushtan. It's just a fun word. Say it with me. Nechushtan. Nechushtan. Yeah, it's just, now get out your napkins and clean yourself off. It's a fun word. Uh, don't bother to look for that word in our passage. It isn't actually there. Uh, but nechushtan shows up about a thousand years later in Second Kings. Uh, chapter 18, by the way. Where it has become an actual object of worship, and the good king, Hezekiah, destroys it. The serpent, very right, the, the brass serpent that was lifted up on a pole. I'm going to go ahead and read that passage here because it's, it's pretty short. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water. And our soul loatheth this light bread, the manna. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned! Duh! For we have spoken against Adonai and against thee. Pray unto Adonai that he take away the serpents from us. 
And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said, if you haven't seen everything, Moses, what would you expect God, Moses, God to do when Moses made that prayer for you? You expect him to take away the serpents, right? Because he's done that every other time. The Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he look upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass, and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, I'm assuming a woman also, don't want to be sexist, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. There's so much weirdness in those few verses. Basically, Israel's feeling foot sore and sorry for themselves. So they pulled their usual, are we there yet routine? No food, no water. Let's go back to being slaves. Remember how great that was? And God, at this point, basically gives them the supernatural equivalent of, don't make me stop this car. If you have kids, you've done that. He sends serpents to bite them and make them die. The minute you've, there have been a few times when you wished you could just make those kids in the back shut up no matter what they did, no matter what they had took to do it. I know you don't want your kids to die, but for a brief half a second, it seems like a good idea every now and then, didn't it? You don't have to admit it. I, you know it's true. So as usual, the Israelites run to Moses crying, We messed up! We messed up! Ask God to make it better! This is not the part that doesn't make sense, by the way. This is the part that is most of the book of Babin Bar and a good chunk of the book of Exodus. Israel does this over and over and over and over and over and over. There's very, there's very, very few times that they're not going, we hate what God's doing, make it better. And then they're surprised when they don't get to go into the promised land, but that's another lesson for another day. Now, the part that makes my head hurt is when Adonai, who had explicitly told Israel, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, thou shalt not bow down thyself, thyself to them. Anyone recognize that passage? Yeah, what's it from? Yeah, the ten, ten words, the Ten Commandments, the basic distillation of the ten precepts that are generally thought of as the foundation of the Mosaic Law. The God who said that proceeds to tell Moses to make a brass serpent, stick it on a pole like an idol, and so anyone who looks at it won't die. Did that not strike anyone as just kind of contrary to what God usually does? Now, to be fair, it's God's rule. It's his rule, and he had already shown several times that he can make exceptions to these rules. To be honest, every single miracle in Scripture, every single miracle that's recorded and every single miracle that is not recorded, is an exception to the rules set up by God of how His universe works. 
But I think the most glaring correlation up to this point is probably when he told Abraham to sacrifice his son. Theologians still grapple with God telling Abraham to sacrifice his son because over and over through in Scripture he says, you will not sacrifice your children to Moloch like the pagans do. You will not sacrifice humans. This is not something that my people do. But Abraham, go sacrifice your son. Now we all know that it worked out in the end because he didn't actually sacrifice his son. God saved him from having to do that. But Abraham, Abraham was willing to do it. According to some rabbinic interpretations, he actually did do it. And then his son was resurrected. That's not what the text actually says. I don't know if I really support that. But I fully support the idea that God could have done that. Now, usually sacrificing your kids is one of those things that gets your land conquered and given to Israel. But God told Abraham to do it, and he did it. Usually, worshiping idols... And even having idols, it's one of those things that gets your land conquered and given to Israel. But at this point, Israel did it because God told them to. Where we find the way these things make sense, and I think you're probably already there, I don't need to explain too much of this to you, is that all these things have correlations to Yeshua. They point forward to the Messiah. Now, the Hukim, all of them, at the time they were given, made absolutely no sense at all. There's no way that Moses could have known that this would point to an event that would happen 1,500 years after he died. Well, between 1,500 and 1,700 years. It's kind of fuzzy on the exact dates. Um, But they become startlingly clear when you view them not only as commandments, but as prophecy. Let's start with the end and work backwards with the Nehushtan, because it gives me a chance to say that word again. The brass snake is the easiest one to connect. Why? Because the Brich Hadashah already does it for us. Yes. Uh, John chapter 3, in his gospel, interpreted the serpent as symbolic of the crucifixion. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. There's a strong body of parallelism for this interpretation. What I mean by that is, in order to determine whether one thing is symbolic of another, one technique is to determine just how many layers of detail support the relationship. Now, obviously, they won't be 100% the same. Um, it wouldn't be a symbol in the case. It would just be the same thing again. But there are plenty of similarities here. Nehushtan was a glorious, beautiful representation of the problem of serpents. Yes? Yes. Raise your hand if you're here. Okay, several of us. Yeshua on the cross, being both very God and very man, 
depicted the glory of Adonai brought down to relationship with us. At the same time, he depicted the problem of our sin and our sinful natures, which are part and parcel of being a human being. So on the Chushtan was a beautiful image of something terrible. Yeshua mirrored that by becoming a terrible image of something beautiful. An ugly, beaten body depicting Adonai's forgiveness and salvation. Uh, second one, the serpent was raised up on a staff just as Yeshua was raised up on the cross. In fact, many depictions of the Nehushtan, at least as far back as the Middle Ages, because there aren't that many of it before that, uh, show the staff as being cross-shaped with the, with the serpent kind of hanging on the crossbeam. Uh, In both cases, Yeshua and the Hushen, healing came through no effort on the part of the beleaguered beyond merely looking at the image. Someone bitten by a serpent wasn't required to look at the Hushen and also apply a complex spell or prayer or an ointment or medicine. They looked and God healed. We aren't required to atone for our sins to make recompense before we are forgiven. We are commanded in Torah to make recompense when, when at all possible. But it is not a prerequisite for being forgiven. It is not a condition of Yeshua's healing and salvation. You don't keep Torah in order to gain healing from our sinful state. You're healed already. That's good news, right? Okay. I'll make sure you knew that. You just look to Yeshua, and He provides the healing. Keeping Torah simply shows your gratitude and love for the one who both created and healed you. Now, as to the water from the rock, there are several passages correlating the water from, from the Selah with Yeshua. Uh, first, there's the water that quenches Israel's thirst. Compared to John 7, 37 and 38. In the last day, that great day of the feast, you remember we talked, we talked another times about how the last day of Sukkot, there was the water ceremony, praying for rain and the pouring out of the water. Yeshua stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Seems like a pretty clear clear correlation. A pretty clear correlation. Ah, Red leather, yellow leather. Then there's the rock. I'm a fan of rock. It's not the kind of rock we're talking about here. Matthew 16, 18. And I say also unto thee, Thou art Peter, Petras is the Greek there. And upon this rock, Petra, similar but not exactly the same word, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Petras means a rock in Greek. It's comparable to Eben in Hebrew, or Kaf in Aramaic. Kaf being where we get the name Kepha or Cephas in most English translations. 
Petra, on the other hand, where do you think it means? It's a big, it's comparable to the word tsur or selah in Hebrew. It means a big, massive, rocky fortress or cliff. Just like the word used in the water from the rock. And then we get to the red heifer. Oh, we love talking about the red heifer because one of the good things about talking about the red heifer is you can interpret it any way you want and nobody's going to say that's wrong because nobody really is sure. So my opinion is, and you can agree with it or not, because you have the right to be wrong, there, there is no direct scriptural link between Yeshua and the red heifer. Uh, there is a non-canonical book called the Epistle of Barnabas. Has anyone here ever read it? Okay. Very few. Um, interesting, not canonical, you don't need to know it. But it does make a clear connection between Yeshua and the red heifer. So you see, there is some good stuff in the non-canonical books. There's also a lot of garbage, so be careful when you read them. But there are a lot of parallels with, anyway. I'm gonna list several of them here. The red heifer was perfect, unblemished, and acceptable for sacrifice. Yeshua was perfect, unblemished, and acceptable for sacrifice. Well, he was blemished right before the sacrifice, but that was part of the sacrifice, so. Obviously, the, uh, the lamb was not perfect after they slit its throat. The red heifer was extremely rare. The rabbis say that between Moses and the destruction of the temple, again, 15 to 1700 years, only nine red heifers were born. That's approximately one every what? Uh, 1.8, years or so. Now, that was rare, but how many have been born who were or are both very God and very man? One, yeah. That, that's pretty rare. Unique is pretty rare. The red heifer separated man from his sin. Do I really need to mention how familiar that sounds with Yeshua? The red heifer removed the uncleanness of death. So the sprinkled with the red heifer, with the spot of separation could again worship in the temple. With Yeshua we have the verse that whosoever believeth on him, what? Shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Those involved in the red heifer sacrifice were made unclean for a fixed amount of time. Not just until they did the mikvah, but for a fixed amount of time, until evening, they were made unclean. Yeshua was made unclean by his own death. An unclean, a dead body is unclean. There's no way around that. Now we all understand that being unclean is not the same as being sinful, right? 
I know we have some visitors. I don't want to confuse that issue too much. There are two different things. But Yeshua was made unclean by his death. And he stayed that way for his time in the grave. Which, whether you believe it was a full three days and three nights, or some other interpretation of that, or something that doesn't really make that particular line important. I'm not going to get into that argument. That's a long argument. Uh, but that uncleanness was removed by his resurrection. Let's face it. Yeshua is not only the Lion of... Is Yeshua the Lion of Judah? Yes, absolutely. Is Yeshua our sacrificed lamb? Yes, yes. Is Yeshua our big red cow? Yes! So this is a lot of very fascinating information. Did anyone else find any of this fascinating or was it just me? Okay, good. I'm not, I'm not completely alone. Who's completely bored by this message? I won't, I won't throw rocks at you. <laughs> How can we apply all this fascinating information to our daily walk with the Lord? Because sometimes it's hard to take these theological precepts and say, that's great, that doesn't matter to me, right? It's all about our obedience to Adonai. How many of you would say that you're serving Adonai to the best of your ability? Or at least trying to do so? Okay. If you're serving him, there are things things that he'll want you to do. He wants you to love him. He wants you to love your neighbor. That's okay, I can live with that. He wants you to love your enemy. That's hard. That's a tough one. But he wants you to act ethically with integrity. Even when it means you take a financial loss. Even when it means you don't look good. He wants you to act ethically and with integrity. He wants you to forgive those who wrong you, even if they don't deserve it. Anyone else struggle with that one? And Raise your hand if you don't struggle with that one. That'll be a much easier group to list. Some of these things seem kind of stupid to you sometimes. If you're not a believer, they seem, most of them seem stupid. Uh, maybe even as stupid as uh, talking to a rock or making a brass snake and sticking it on a stick. Do them anyway. Yeah, do them. What did it hurt? Or, was anyone harmed by Moses raising up that snake? Well, you could say that people later on were harmed by worshiping it, but at that time and in that place, when God told him to do it, was raising up that snake going to make the snake problem worse? No. How about this? Even if you thought that it might make the snake problem worse, should he have done it anyway? Yeah. Why? Because God said so. Yeah. Do you trust that God knows more about the world than you do? Yeah. You see, Moses probably didn't know that 1,500 years after his death, Messiah would finally show the reason for the snake, the rock, and the cow. 
What makes you think that you should understand why the creator of all creation wants you to do something? We have several people who have served in the military. I'm kind of ashamed that I'm not one of them. I tried and they wouldn't take me. Uh, but say you're a private in, the, in whatever service, a private or a seaman, whatever your, your, the lowest enlisted rank is in your particular branch. As an airman for you, wouldn't it be? Um, and the commander of your particular base or ship comes to you and tells you to do something. Do you ask him why? <laughs> do you say, you know what, I think I have a better idea than that. Yeah, when you do that, what's going to happen? You're, you spend the rest of your life uh, cleaning toilets or peeling potatoes or all of the above. With your own toothbrush, maybe. No. When that commander comes to you and tells you to do something, you say, yes, sir, and you do it. You might say, yes, ma'am, but even most of the women don't mind being called sir because it's still a measure of respect in the military. And they will tell you if you choose the wrong one. The first time, they will tell you. The second time, they will punish you for it. No, do it. That's how you apply this to your life. It's simple obedience. Recognize that God is in authority over you. And then when he tells you to do something, do it. And I will admit that there are times when he tells you to do something that if it doesn't make any sense to you and it seems like contrary, it seems like it might be contrary to what his will is, he will not be offended if you wait for confirmation. If you need confirmation for that, he will give it to you. Because let's face it, it may be your own subconscious talking to you. It may be another supernatural being talking to you. It takes maturity in the faith to gain the discernment to tell the difference between the word of God and the word of yourself or anyone else. But once you're sure that that's God speaking to you, Do not delay in doing what he says. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe. Lord, as we come before you humbly and obediently today, congregating on your Sabbath and learning from your word, we ask again that you would just be with every person here. Be palpably palpably present in our lives. When we face trials, make yourself known to us that you're carrying us through them. Lord, when we face joys, remind us that you are the source of that joy. And Lord, when we see something wonderful, Lord, remind us that you are the Lord of all things of wonder. That everything in this creation you made And that without our own sin, your your creation would still be perfect. And yet you forgive us for marring your creation in that way. Lord, we know we can never be deserving of your love. But Lord, help every one of us to strive to deserve that. 
every day, every minute, every second of our lives. Grant that each of us takes every decision we make and stops and thinks, is this your will? And then only do it if it is. Lord, as we leave this place, either to go to get food or to leave and go out and see friends and family or to go home and take a nap, whatever, Lord, may you go with us, not only today, but through the whole week. May, may our faith not be a Saturday or a Sunday thing. May we carry it as part of ourselves as we face the world 24-7, 365 and a quarter days a year. And Lord, may you remind us always to thank you, to praise you, and to glorify your name. Amen.